Welcome to the Church and Family Life podcast. Church and Family Life exists to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's so great uh, be with, to be with you again, Jason. Hey. Hi, Scott. Howdy. And, uh, and John Snyder from New Albany, Mississippi. Yeah. Good to be here. John, thanks for joining us. Of course, John is a pastor at Christ Church in New Albany. And uh, so you're joining us here to talk about the mark of the beast. People all over the place are talking about the mark of the beast as it is when there's tumult in the world. You know, the mark is the word garagma in, or karagma in, in Greek. And uh, is it a computer chip? You know, is it a barcode? Mm. Uh, I've heard people say it's the vaccine, it's the mark of the beast. So uh, we're here to talk about the mark of the beast. I'll read uh, the biblical language and the and sort of the context of where it appears because it's a it's an important subject. It's something. It's a subject that God has given us to understand. So in Revelation thirteen uh, sixteen through eighteen. Uh, We learn about this beast that deceives the whole world. He exercises great authority. He's very convincing. He's uh, he's like a lamb and a and a dragon at the same time. Uh, He has compelling uh, qualities. Wildly popular, but he does something. And I'll read what he does. Verse sixteen in Revelation thirteen. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So, what is the mark of the beast? So, John, as it turns out, you preached through the book of Revelation a few years ago, and you have a sermon on chapter 13 where you describe your understanding of the mark of the beast. So, tell us. Yeah, well, that that's quite a daunting question. Um, I, I would have uh, I would have actually put a lot of money down on a bet that I would never be having this conversation on a podcast. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I, I I do want to say that this is uh, like you mentioned. This is something that God has given to His church. So we so we don't want to kind of mockingly look down on people who are trying to understand this. Right. But it is also a thing that has really been given to abuse, especially in the you know in our lifetime. And uh, I grew up with um, films about you know everyone disappearing at once, and then uh, you know what was the mark of the beast? We watched these as uh, as uh, I was a member of a youth group, so we we would go watch these. And um, so you know it's just it's given it's been given a lot of bad uh, interpretations. So let me just I'll try to do my best to say as much as I can understand about it. Let's take those two beasts. The, the first beast, which you didn't mention, but there's a beast earlier in the chapter that is terrifying with, um, with all these different expressions of irresistible power. And it's a mark of the world governments 
and especially as they often find themselves aligned against the rights of Christ. And then the second beast, which you mentioned, uh, it is fascinating that the second beast is a, a very safe looking animal, a lamb, two small horns. Uh, and as you mentioned, the Bible says, though, but it does speak like a dragon. So we have one. The second beast is actually, in many ways, more dangerous than the first because it appears to be safe. What is it? Well, it appears here in chapter 13. Again, we find the beast mentioned in you know, 14 and 19 and 20. These are being judged. Uh, we find a false prophet appearing later, which I believe is synonymous with this second beast. Uh, the second beast, as best as we can understand is an expression of world religion or world philosophies that appear to be very safe, maybe even beneficial. After all, think, what seems to us to be a better, what's the best way to fix our lives? Well, we think, well, religion. And what better religion for a man who's never been conquered by the, by, by the claims of Christ and the love of Christ? His height of religion is a religion that's all about him. So really a me-centered worldly view of what life is all about. And when we wake up and live uh, based on a religion that's all about me and what I want and what I feel I deserve, or we wake up and live by kind of a pragmatic philosophy of what works and uh, this is the best way for me, then really we are followers of this second beast. Uh, And so I think the mark is not a physical outward mark that appears at the very end of the end of times, right before Christ comes. But these end times, these last days in Revelation refer to the period of time from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. So we have 2,000 years. There is a mark that has enduringly been given to the followers of this false religion for 2,000 years. What is the mark? And I believe that these are spiritual qualities that go hand in hand with a self-deceiving religion. Right, and I would just uh, add, it's the, it's the mark that defines you. Mm. It's the mark of the world. It is, it's what you believe. It's, it's your worldview. You've, you've accepted a, a satanic worldview, and that is what marks you. You think like the world. You talk like the world. Now, you may use religious language like we think that this second beast probably does. Mm. But um, it's, it's running with and pleasing the world and yourself. And that's what marks your life. It's, you, you know, is it, a, is it a 666 written on your forehead? Probably not. But it's a mark of the world. And the same, you know, Satan is always mimicking God. And, you know, when, when Moses said, you shall write them on your hand and put them on your forehead, um, he's, the devil is just mimicking this. It's, it, it, when Moses told the children of Israel to do that, he's saying, your life is marked by the word of God. Your whole life, what you do with your hands is marked by the word of God, what you do in your thinking Everything about your house, it's marked by the holiness of God. In contrast, I think you have this mark here. It's just a mark of the world. So uh, with that, uh, John, you were in your church several years ago, and Richard Owen Roberts came and delivered a message. Uh, And we kind of want to think about 
that message and what he said in terms of this mark. What is the mark of the world? Because he delivered some really clear points that help us understand the mark of the world. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, it was a sermon entitled 12 Marks of Death. Now, we were talking about um, you know, the marks of life, regeneration. How do we know that we're spiritually alive? But he approached it from classic Mr. Roberts. You know, he approached it from the opposite perspective. How can you tell that you're spiritually dead? This is one of the sermons that actually led to my wife's conversion uh, or, or um, really gave her an assurance that that great change had taken place um, after the church had started, she was the second person we know of that was wonderfully converted. Uh, she listened to that sermon and she realized all my religion up to this point was marked by these 12 evidences of spiritual death. And I think if a person's going to invest their lives in searching out a mark, you would be really, it would be much wiser instead of listening to the, new, the newest theory, uh, the, the newest conspiracy theory about how the government is going to mark you. But rather look at the last 2,000 years, what, what does the scripture describe as the mark of a life, as Scott, you just mentioned, in what we do and how we think, what marks the slave of sin, and what marks the slave of Christ? There is such a different picture there. Yeah, I, I'm just going to read them. There are 10 of them, and then we can just try to pick off a few of them. We'll mm-hmm. let you lead us in there. So the first is to be unaffected by God's sovereign rights in your life or in the world. Number two, a carelessness or indifference about the state of one's own soul. Number three, to sin freely without any powerful conviction of sin. Number four, to have no dread of hell or the propriety of God to send you there. Six, or number five, to be unchanged by what you know and confess to believe about Jesus Christ. Six, to be Pharisee-like with an interest in forms of religion rather than truth and heartfelt religion. Seven, to be indifferent to the means of grace. Eight, To want enough religion to be free from the penalty of sin, but not its power. Number nine, to be recognized by the world as one of its own. Ten, to fail to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So there are the ten, the, boy, Oh, there are, ele- there are 12. I'm sorry. Number 11, 12, not 10. Yeah. To be uncaring concerning the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom throughout the world. Number 12, to be earthly minded instead of heavenly minded. So those are very penetrating. So let's, let's, let's talk about them. John, what, where do you want to lead us on this? Yeah, well, we don't have time to go through all 12, so maybe we could just hit a few. And, and, I, and I want to say that um, if you can imagine a person who is concerned in our day with, with the upheaval of so much that we, you know, as Americans, have come to see as secure things, like basic moral issues, and now everything is turned on its head, so it can be a scary time. Uh, can you imagine 
how frightened a person would be if they looked in the mirror tomorrow morning and they began to see the forming of these numbers on their head. I mean, wh- what would they do? They, they would do anything. They would search out these pastors. What can I do? I'm one of them, you know. But how easy we rest with these marks. So for example, a carelessness or an indifference about the state of your soul, how many people do show up at church occasionally, but their life could be genuinely described as being marked by a a pretty distinct carelessness about issues regarding their soul. And they are not afraid of that at all. Uh, And he mentions ways that that would show up, and one of them there is an indifference to the means of grace. So while we would never rest easy with uh, with a tattoo of 666 on our forehead or on our hands, we do rest easy with dusty Bibles, with churches that we are officially members of but rarely attend, with you know, uh, with opportunities to pray uh, that are that are continually neglected. You know, those kinds of things tend not to frighten us, and they ought to. You know, one of the one of the prophets talks about uh, the people shrugging their shoulders at his laws. Mm. You, you know, they're. They're not really against them that much, but they're just shrugging their shoulders. They're not into it. Yeah, and you can, and a lot of these, um, we do have to be discerning because a lot of these demonstrate that there could be an outward appearance of being very serious about Christ, Mm -hmm. but God knows that the inward heart is marked with the mark of the beast. So, for example, being Pharisee-like in our interest of maintaining the form of religion. That is, the, the exoskeleton, you know, the, the appearance of being a, a pretty serious Christian, but in the heart, having no real yearning for Christ, no real life. Uh, Scott, the one that strikes me is uh, on this list is number four, uh, to have no dread of hell or the propriety of God to send you there. The... Uh, just the phrase, the propriety of God mm. to send you to hell, uh, I think the average churchgoer wouldn't know what to do mm. with the language there. Is, is it proper for God to send you know religious, respectable people to hell? And uh, the testimony of Scripture is that hell will be filled up with people who are very respectable to their neighbors. Well, and, or, you know, when you go out and witness to people, what is the number one quality of the conversation. Well, God wouldn't send somebody like me to hell. I, I'm not that bad. You know, mm-hmm. so it's the, the, the whole matter of propriety is lost. Uh, on uh, number eight, he mentions wanting enough religion to be free from the penalty of sin, but not its power. So if a person does admit, well, yeah, I guess I would, uh, I would end up there, uh, but I've got enough of Christ to keep me from there. One of the illustrations I remember Robert's giving, it's not a perfect illustration um, because it is, it's hypothetical. And so it's not, in a sense, it's not a biblical possibility. But he gave this quick illustration. And I'll, well, actually, his wasn't quick. I'll have to give it quickly. He <laughs> said, what if God... What if Christ appeared in your bedroom tonight and said to you, uh, there is no more room in heaven um, for anyone. And so if, if you follow me, you need to know at the end of time, you will not be rewarded with heaven, but you will be sent to hell. Um, and he asked the question, um, would that change your love for Christ? Or you know, would, that cha- would you say, well, if I'm not going to get heaven, then I, I don't want anything to do with you. And he said, now imagine a completely different scene. Imagine that you're a lost person uh, 
and Christ comes and says to you, no matter how you live, I'm going to bring you to heaven. Would you be glad to hear that? Would you say, well, great, because I want to live. I, there's all these sins I plan to enjoy. And um, if I get heaven and these favorite sins, that's, that's all the more better. And he was just using these hypotheticals to demonstrate that the heart of the believer in each of those situations, there's a very distinct response. I want Christ, even if I'm not being promised heaven. And I don't want heaven without Christ and without his holiness. Um, so, you know, are we fooling ourselves when we say that we really, we're really serious about Christianity, but what we're, all we really want is a get-out-of-jail-free card? Scott, uh, something that's not uh, direct to this, but it's very, very related to something that Jesus says in uh, John chapter 8. I'll read John chapter 8, uh, 42 through 44. Uh, Jesus said to them, if uh, God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come from myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And uh, so the, the marks of the sons of the devil here are the, the, the marks that characterize the devil himself. Uh, he's full of hatred and falsehood. And so th- those are marks. The, the stunning thing about this text is who Jesus says this to. He, he says this to the most religious. He's, he's talking to, uh, you know, practicing, quote, unquote, faithful Jews, and yet he's calling them sons of the devil, really marked by the things that characterize him. You know, and he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's all part of that whole scheme you would you know even if, if even if you weren't promised anything you would want his commandments because they're holy mm. and they're good I, I think it goes right to the point of what uh, what John was has been speaking a lot about which is that the great line isn't between the religious and the irreligious uh, it's between those who have trusted in Christ and those who have not mm. yeah number five you, you can think of demonic faith to be unchanged by what you know and confess to believe about Jesus Christ. So very much like a demonic faith from James, demons believe. they, In a sense, they have really good doctrine. They know that there is one God, etc. Uh, and yet they are not altered by that belief. That, that does not bring them to submission and love to the king. Uh, it, it makes no beneficial change in them. And what if the mark of the beast is that we have a head full of religious phrases and we are not altered at all. Uh, You know, no one watching us from a distance would be able to tell that we believed anything differently than they did. And that's the terrifying thing about evangelicalism. You you have, I think we have millions whose lives haven't been changed and, and yet able to go to church probably really like the live stream, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and still be able to maintain the basic, the basic ethical propositions, but the ongoing daily transformation of life isn't happening. Yeah, and, you know, we don't want to be negative um, in, in the sense that, that it's, it's not all dark, obviously. 
Uh, Revelation is giving a terrible warning here, but that's not all that Revelation has said. A person could take this list of 12 things and reverse them, and we would see um, the beauty of what God works in a soul when he graciously unites that soul to a living Savior. And, you know, so all of these marks, as ugly as they are, the, the flip, the reverse, the true Christian is so beautiful. And what God does in us is so precious that we, we don't want to forget that there are marks of life to be pursued. Hey, so let's do that. Let's flip them. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first one. Uh, the first one is to be unaffected by God's sovereign rights in your life or in the world, to, to make it, to turn it to the positive to be to be delighted by God's sovereign rights in your life and in the world. Yeah, or number 2, to be very careful and, you know, diligent with regard to the state of our soul. Number 3 was to sin freely without uh, any powerful conviction of sin. Uh, that the opposite would uh, of that would be when sin is part of the life of the believer that they actually it, it uh, it impacts them tremendously. They uh, they can't get free of of the nagging sense that this dishonors the Lord. And so, number four to, is to have no dread of hell or the propriety of God to send you there. To state it positively, to see the propriety of God to send you to hell and be so thankful that He wouldn't because of the blood of Christ. And number five to be wonderfully altered by what we know and confess to believe about Jesus Christ. Uh, number six, to have, uh, to have the heart of religion and not just, I think you used the word exoskeleton mm-hmm. of religion, just this outward facade, but have the heart of it. Number seven, to desire the means of grace with all your heart. Number eight, to not be satisfied, simply to be told by your pastor that you're not going to hell, but to long for the powerful work of Christ within. Number nine was uh, to be recognized by the world as one of its own as a, as a sign of death. So a sign of life would be uh, to, to be disowned by the world as one of its own. And then 10, to find in yourself that you, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Number 11 would be to be wonderfully concerned about the glory or the reputation or the honor of our God and the spread of his rule throughout the world. And uh, finally, number 12 would be to be heavenly-minded instead of earthly-minded. So that's great. What a wonderful, what a wonderful picture of what God does in the heart of a, a person to make them want to love him and make them want to follow him. That's, that's the mark uh, not of the beast, but it's the mark of the shepherd. He's such a good shepherd. Mm-hmm. And when you think about all those that we just read on the positive side, how life-giving, how encouraging, how happifying they are to have them mm-hmm. in your soul, and to enter into that life just ongoing day by day to lay your life before the Lord and say, Lord, help me, you know, lead me, be my, be my shepherd, be my king. It's a wonderful thing. So there you have it, the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is to not think so much of the shepherd, but to think quite a bit about yourself and about the world. That's the mark of the beast. And a 666 probably won't appear on your head, 
but it is in your heart, and it will determine your eternal state. Okay, any last comments, John? John, why don't you give us something, and then Jason, and then we'll wind it up. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, these are beautiful things that Christ gives, but it's not a it's not just a one time gift, you know. At regeneration, that's that's the, you know, that's the opening of a fountain of living water in a life that once was a desert, and it's spreading. So there 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 is something to be grateful for. God did it, not us. But then there is that you mentioned going to God, cultivating these these precious gifts. And um, I, I think of Bunyan's picture because we do live in a scary day and people can be frightened unnecessarily in many ways um, because of what they're listening to. Think of Bunyan's picture of God sustaining these wonderful traits in the life of a Christian. You remember he goes to an interpreter's house and there's a fireplace and the enemy is there mm. dousing it with water, but the fire can't be put out. It seems to rage all the more. And he goes around behind that wall and he sees Christ throwing oil on the fire. So regardless of what the world, uh, you know, the terrors, the doubts and, and the insecurities you may feel, if you will dwell near your king and, uh, you know, and uh, pursue him through these means of grace, he will sustain and uh, grow these wonderful pictures of his work. Mm, amen. So I uh, just want to double down on that and say walking near, uh, walking with the Lord, walking closely with Him is is the antidote. Uh, it's The mark of the beast has been made tremendously complex and mysterious, but the antidote is very simple, and it's just walking closely with the Lord. Mm, amen. Okay, so it's, it's time to get clear on the mark of the beast yeah. and uh, stop watching some of those silly films. And... Uh, but God is so kind. He he draws us to himself, not the beast, where we, we want him and and not the things of this world. That's the kindness of the Lord. Okay, brothers, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. What a what a what a neat proposition. And uh, thank you for joining us on the Church and Family Life podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Church and Family Life podcast. We have thousands of resources on our website, announcements of conferences coming up. Hope you can join us. Go to churchandfamilylife.com. See you next Monday for our next broadcast of the Church and Family Life podcast.